Father, this morning are thankful for your word. It's living and active. Father, that cut to the core of our being, who we are, how we move. Father, I pray this morning that your word would have its full effect in us, individually, as a body of believers. Father, as you see fit, by your good pleasure, according to your plan, for your purpose, for your glory, your sake alone. Father, I pray that I will be faithful. Father, any anxiousness I might have in the flesh, Father, that it would be moved aside by the truth of your word. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to come. And by the songs we sing, Father, by the word we dine on, that we can worship you. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his example and his finished work. By which we have access to you. Father, we give this time to you again for your glory and your sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text is specifically this morning, James 1, 1 through 18. Let's read. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. It will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exultation, and let the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So, all, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. 
We had a meeting this past Wednesday of the men at Crosspoint, and I shared from the same text. And uh, as I shared with them, I'm going to share with you, just walking through this uh, in the last few months, especially this particular chapter, and even more particular, James 1.1. Um, my perspective, my posture, and my movement were all challenged. This is a text that I've read before. It's a text I've taught from before. But just revisiting it, I was reminded of some things. And if I was honest, I would say, man, it kind of assaulted me a little bit. It just stopped me dead in my tracks. And as I'm reading through, what kept popping out to me is this thing of perspective and posture and movement for me. How am I viewing things? How am I seeing things? How do I have myself positioned? What am I ready to do? What's my bearing? And what is it based on? And then how am I moving? How do I move in that? As I was considering that, I kept going back to one place. It was James 1.1. This text is full of wonderful little details and wonderful satellites that we could go to. There's all kinds of goodies in here, I'm telling you. Uh, this morning, though, I just want to kind of step back and look at this, this text that I just read and, and, and look for what it, how it needs to impact us how it needs to change us. You know, when we gather to worship, when we gather to read his word, our hope is that we're going to be changed for his glory. So back, James 1.1. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I kept going back there. It seems like if James is offering this from this text, from this perspective, I need to pay attention to that. I mean, it really caught my attention. And I would go and read, and I'd read about trials, and read about these things, and I'm back to James, a servant. Just simply a servant. If you read commentaries, and you look at history, I mean, there's um, different Jameses they wonder might have written this. Was it James, the brother of Jesus? Was it James, the disciple, apostle, son of Zebedee? You know, and everybody kind of makes cases for different Jameses. The James I'm seeing here that's very clear is James was just a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That I know clearly from the text. That when he speaks, he's speaking on behalf of his master. The word servant here is really similar to the word to the meaning of slave. And that's, that's not some of what our understanding is of it. This is just being of the household of in view is I'm of the household of God. I'm of God. I'm of Jesus. And, it's, and he sees them as one. This is not both. It's one. God and the Lord Jesus Christ is one. So right away, I'm like, you know, what kind of stands in opposition to that? Remember, I'm taking this in. I'm applying it. And I'm very quickly, I'm, I'm a little bit troubled. <laughs> uh, is this how I'm moving? Because remember, I've read this text and I'm going back. Is this how I view things? Do I view things truly as a servant of God? 
what really stands in strong opposition to that is self. And I think as I, the, the trouble I was having was as I'm walking through this text that we're going to walk through in just a minute, I'm beginning to see where very subtly self is on the throne. Self is seated and in session. And it's like get real time. Get real time. I think it's real helpful for us as we, as we walk through uh, these passages first that we consider this perspective. And uh, best place to go is Scripture. Jesus himself speaks to this. In John 12, 49, you don't have to go there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be jumping to a lot of Scripture, and you don't have to be uh, shifting through there. You, you, might, you do need to write them down, though, and go there. Because uh, one of the things you're going to hear out of my mouth today is, don't take my word for it. For you to know it's truth, you need to test it against something. That's the word of God. But Jesus himself, in speaking of this, and moving as a servant, he says in John 12, 49, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. So that's Jesus' commentary on being a servant. I'm not saying anything. I'm not speaking anything that the Father hasn't told me to say. And in John 8, 28, this is again Jesus saying, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. So this little short satellite I took to servant and trying to understand this perspective stopped me dead in my tracks. Uh, how prone are we to come up with our own interpretation, our own wisdom, uh, and even more so, given opportunity, we love to dispense it. So immediately... Uh, realize there's just a need for me to take everything right here and my perspective as a servant is to be positioned in a way that I am before God if he is to be my master my lord how am I to position myself listen to Jesus Jesus describes the faithful and why a servant in Matthew 24, 45. Matthew 24, 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I know it's graphic, but it makes the point.
So the wise and faithful servant, where is he? He's right where his master placed him. What's his posture? How's he moving? He's doing exactly what the Father gave him to do. And for how long? He's about the master's business until the master comes back. Don't miss perseverance in there. So contrast this with the not wise, the not faithful servant. Where's his focus? Where's his perspective? Ah, master's away. Now I'm going to move in my own wants, my own desires. Wicked servant. Can you believe that? Listen to Mark 9, 31. Jesus, as he's teaching his disciples, says to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. What does that sound like? What was Jesus just talking about? Is that not the gospel? But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. That's the disciples. These are men walking with Christ. If we think just nudging up close, if we think just saying we're walking as a servant, Gets it done? Is true? Here's his perspective that's shaped in service to self. Who's the greatest? What does that sound like? Competition? Comparison? Don't think I didn't think about that. When I speak sometimes, am I speaking to sound a little more wise than the other guy? I got a little better handle on this. Let me give you my wisdom. Am I so set on serving myself that I even miss the gospel? I'm inattentive to the work I'm supposed to be doing, the things I'm supposed to be saying. Am I over, over here thinking I'm saying something really wise and really profound and I've missed the gospel? Where do I have self-seated? On throne? Is God just my helper in getting there? 
What kingdom am I seeking first? Is the kingdom I want to see come mine? I had a friend send me an article. It was very timely. Because I'm sitting right here in this. I was actually looking at Jesus' prayer, the model prayer, you know, this dailiness of we need our provision daily. And also looking at seek first the kingdom of God. And I received this article. And I want to share it with you. Uh, it was just so incredibly <laughs> timely. And I'd say appropriate. As God used it to kind of expose some of the places I had self-enthroned. This article is by Paul Tripp. And I, I, probably this was in relation to a pastor's conference. So he's speaking to guys who are leaders. And he says, I don't think you could say more dangerous words than those found in the Lord's Prayer. I don't think you could pray a more radical prayer. Probably most of us, even in ministry, would hesitate to say these words if we really understood what we were saying. We would at least pause before repeating this prayer if we clearly understood that we were actually inviting upheaval into our lives and ministries. This prayer can't be answered except through the tearing down and rebuilding of many things in our lives. Here are the radical words I've been alluding to. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I must admit that I don't always greet God's kingdom with delight. I want certain things in my life, and I not only want them, but I know how, when, and where I want them. I want my life and ministry to be comfortable. I want my schedule to be unobstructed and predictable. I want people to esteem and appreciate me. I want control over the situations and relationships that I cannot avoid. I want people to affirm my opinions and follow my pastoral lead. I want the ministry initiatives I direct to be well received and successful. When I'm off the ministry clock, I want the pleasures that I find entertaining to be available to me. I want my children to appreciate that they have been blessed with me as their father, and I want my wife to be a joyful and committed supporter of my dreams. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to live without. I don't want to have to deal with personal defeat or ministry failure. It's humbling to admit, but I want my kingdom to come and my will to be done. In this way, I stand with everyone in Scripture from Cain to Peter who wanted his own will or who followed his own way. Think of King David. What a high calling to be a part of a kingdom that would never end, out of which the Messiah would come. But in David's claustrophobic little kingdom of one, Bathsheba would be his wife. In David's kingdom, Bathsheba would not have already been married. In David's kingdom, he could have Bathsheba and the blessing of the Lord on his reign at the same time. So David acted out of zeal for his own kingdom, forgetting that he was sent as the ambassador of a greater king. Sadly, in life and ministry, you and I do the very same thing. I get mad at someone not because he broke God's law, but because he broke mine. We get impatient with others because they seem to delay the realization of our kingdom's purposes. Or we get discouraged with God because he brings the very uncomfortable things into our lives that we work so hard to avoid. 
bad things happen to good people. Your kingdom come is a dangerous prayer, for it means the death of your sovereignty. It means your life and ministry will be shaped by the will of another. It means you will experience the messiness, discomfort, and difficulty of God's refining grace. It means surrendering the center of your universe to the one who alone deserves to be there. It means loving God above all else and your neighbor as yourself. It means experiencing the freedom that can only be found when God breaks your bondage to you. It means finally living for and ministering for the one glory that is truly glorious, the glory of God. The prayer that Christ taught us to pray is the antidote to sin, to, the antidote to sin in. Since sin starts with the heart, I'll only live within the moral boundaries God has set when my heart desires God's will more than it desires my own. No set of ministry disciplines, no wonderful strategic plan, and no reformation of leadership culture can produce a heart that functionally and joyfully submits to God's kingdom and glory. Only God's powerful transforming grace can produce this kind of heart. Only those being delivered by death who desire to escape the kingdom of self that always leads to destruction and death pray, your kingdom come. Words of surrender, words of protection, and words of grace. Are you willing to say, Lord, I commit to do everything I do, saying everything I say, and choosing everything I choose for the sake of your kingdom and not mine? Do you find joy and hope in knowing that as God calls you to live and minister for his kingdom, he frees you from being in bondage to your little kingdom of one? And do you daily seek grace, freely giving, so you may say yes to both questions? Appropriate, timely. Philippians 2, 5 says, Has this mind, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Jesus' example is in John 13. I told you I'm going to make a lot of reference to Scripture because I want to be very careful here. <laughs> I want you to hear what God has to say. I want you to know a servant's perspective and posture and movement by way of Christ's example. In John 13, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Did you get that? He had come forth from God and was going back to God. And his example in service, he rose up from supper and he laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself about. Then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet. 
That's our Lord. That's our master. So now, verse 2. Having been given this perspective of servant, moving as God says move, speaking with words that God has spoken. Let's read verses two through four. Count it all joy or pure joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Okay, disconnect. Right away. Self says, joy and trials, kind of hard to meet up. But as a servant of God, what should my perspective be in relation to these trials? And these trials here is, is tests. It's testing that you're going to go through. As proof to who you are. So how might self greet that? I'll tell you how I greeted it. Seem like, seems like to me, and I shared this with some of our men Wednesday night, um, quickly, and it's funny, in this contrast between what our perspective should be as a servant and what our perspective might be uh, when self is seated and enthroned, seated in session. That's what came to me. That's what troubled me so much. That's what came pretty easily. Trials are a disruption if we're serving ourselves. Because it's something that we're we just don't have under our control. I want to control my circumstances. I want good things to happen to me because I'm a good person. Who am I serving there? Self-preservation starts to set in too. Man, this is a really difficult trial. But this is something that could cause death. If self is seated and in session, fear of death. You know, this thing that we've been delivered from, this fear of death, that comes back. That's in view. We don't have life in view. We move in self-sufficiency. We come up with our own remedies to the situation. I'm sure it's just me, not you, right? I know exactly what I need to do to fix this. I just got to do better. Got to try harder. Got to figure out what piece of wisdom I don't have yet, and I'm going to get that going here. So we want to provide our own remedy, or what? We want to avoid it altogether. I don't want those hard things. Unfortunately, we're not in control. 
And if we're self-satisfied, things are rocking along. When hardship comes, it's, it's unexpected. We need to understand that our truth and service to self, our truth is a lie. The reality is Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He is the one by whom all things were created and for whom all things were created. And if that's true, if I'm in the middle of a trial, why am I there? Who placed me there? Who has me there? If I have the perspective of a servant, I understand that God has placed me there. And I need to know why. Here it says, when I meet trials of various kinds, know that it's for the testing of your faith that produces steadfastness. Steadfastness in what? And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's something I'm missing here. We're going to find out in a minute what that is. But if I have the perspective of a servant in the middle of a trial being given the opportunity to be proven a servant of God, would I greet that a little differently? If really my true heart and my true purpose, my true desire is to be shown a servant of God, wouldn't I appreciate the opportunity? In the Greek, this all joy, and let's not count everything joy, it's count it pure joy, the type of joy we're to have. And the Greek here suggests kind of, it's really cool, this one interpretation of that is calm delight so in the midst of difficult and what can be really hard things even painful things we can have a calm delight if our perspective is eternal if our perspective is set by the one we serve and who we're serving is God God's perfecting us in these trials these hard, painful, sorrowful things in our life even to the point of losing it. God is perfecting us for his purpose. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This is our opportunity to share in, our, in Christ's sufferings. Hebrews 5, 7, In the day of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And listen, and being made perfect, 
he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So what is this building in us, these trials? Given the perspective, again, of a servant, a posture of a servant, ready to move as God directs, what's being built in us is consistent obedience, a steadfastness in what God says we are to do. It's hard to be steadfast when self, God, self, God. James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. We are to seek godly wisdom. I don't know how you would respond to if any of you lacks wisdom, but my response was, yes, I do. So what's my remedy here? Where do I go seeking wisdom? It says here that we are to ask God. Who, by the way, gives generously to all without reproach? So the perspective of one and the posture of one you're going to get tired of me saying that, aren't you? Just who is seeking godly wisdom and has it for the asking, what should our posture be? Asking God sounds like what? Prayer? Is our posture on our knees before our God? Is it going to his word? Truth? We can do that now without reproach. Why? Listen to Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Did y'all hear it in there? There was perspective and a posture and a movement. Our perspective is that Jesus is our high priest and he has provided access by his blood and his flesh to step into the Holy of Holies, before God. We have access in Christ. And because we have access, we should draw near. That's our movement, draw near. How? With a true heart. We're going to talk about a true heart more here in just a minute. But a true heart, think about true. What does true mean? Is it just true false? When I see true heart here, I'm thinking of this heart that is settled it's true. It's straight. 
You know, somebody will talk about something, they look at it, and whoop, it goes down. It's true. It's not going off in other directions. Full assurance of faith. Christ is fully seated and in session. Heart sprinkled clean. Sound like the blood of Christ. And our bodies washed with pure water. What does that sound like? Man, Wednesday night, what did you hear about that? Washed with the pure water of what? It sounds like a husband to his wife. This pure water of the word. So this true heart that's set on a course that is faith in Christ. Narrow way, you might say. Heart sprinkled clean, covered by the blood of Jesus, bodies washed, and the truth of God's word. Because in Isaiah 55, 8, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And I think this is where I kind of want to, for a second, just kind of step over here and just have a conversation with you about this thing, wisdom, and our resource in that. It comes only from the Father. Uh, But there can be all kinds of dispensers. Okay? The word rightly handled. Okay? I got to thinking about things I count on for wisdom. Okay? Sometimes my own thoughts. Sometimes books. Teachers. Preachers, elders, deacons, small group leaders maybe, husband, wife. If God is our master, if if we're moving with Christ as our Lord, what we speak and what we say is what he spoke and said the danger there is when we're moving according to self and in a self-serving way because then our thoughts are confused we can take these books but these books don't point to this word it's man's wisdom and just as we discussed Wednesday night men you gotta be in the word In the second part of this sermon next week, we're going to be talking about doing the Word. You've got to be in it to do it, and you've got to do it to test it. You've got to know it, guys. These things I'm saying today, I hope you're writing down these verses, and you're going to go check and see if I was even right. Don't think because a guy stands up on a stage or wears a title... That he is a dispenser of godly wisdom. 
I'm saying don't count on it. Okay? The danger in seeing our own words or the words of a man as lofty leads us to trust in him, to follow him. And in a way, he kind of becomes our master. He's the one we're serving. We're no longer seeking truth. We're not going here. Or after the next thing he says or the next book he writes or the next sermon he preaches. We have to come back to the word. Romans eleven thirty three says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has been given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. 1 Corinthians 3.18 Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. So where are we? Where is the servant of God? What's his perspective? His perspective is all truth, all wisdom comes from God. What's his posture? He's on his knees. He's in the Word. James 1, 6 through 8. But this one who's asking for wisdom is to ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What does it mean to be single-minded? What does it mean to not doubt? Does it mean we just got to got to get our faith meter up to here? Got to really believe it. It's so cerebral for a lot of us. We think this is where faith is built in our head. Let's look back to Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near, remember we talked about this a minute ago, true heart, full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What's in view there? Christ. Christ is our sufficiency. Christ alone is our sufficiency. We're to be Christ-minded. To be single-minded is to be Christ-minded. Not just single-minded on anything. Single-minded that Christ is sufficient for our access. Our faith should be fully in Christ and his finished work. 
Not can I conjure up enough belief to go do anything I want, stupid or not, and God, please anoint what I'm doing. God bless me. Boy, for me, it was good to think about blessing God as opposed to saying, God bless me. God bless what I'm doing. God, can't you see? I'm doing this for you. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. This is Jesus speaking. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. I read that, and my response, or my thought was, you know, there's nothing left after all. <laughs> there's nothing left over for self. Is that my reality? My fear is that, you know, I'm walking through this and I'm sharing this scripture. I mean, this is the word, and I pray you'll take it and test it. But I'm, but I'm sharing this, and it's just another, just another message. Just another guy talking about these really unrealistic things. My life really can't be like this because you understand I'm, I've got this reality out here, this job I've got to go to, this family I've got to lead. Um, there's nothing left after all. So how do I view my circumstances? Where am I looking for wisdom? Do I have a foot over here? Under this table? Ah, this is the table of God. I'm going to go there on Sunday and I'm going to dine on his word. And my other foot is fully planted in the world. My desires, my needs, things I want. Double-minded maybe? Verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass and his flowers fall and his beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Listen to a few verses about the rich. Matthew nineteen twenty four. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Luke 12, 15. Take care and be on your, on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what's our perspective, our posture, our movement in regard to the lowly? 
and the rich. We probably don't have to say anything. Probably someone observing might be able to see what our pursuits are. Does our perspective, posture, and movement put on display a servant who is satisfied in Christ? You sang just a few minutes ago that God is your portion. Is God your portion? Am I content? John 6, 27. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. What does belief look like? 1 Peter 1.24 All flesh is like the grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So what are we in pursuit of? What is gain to us? Now hear me, hear me. I'm not talking about having, just having things. I'm talking about your pursuits. What are you after? What's your goal in life? What's your heart set on? Are you in pursuit of God? The things of God? Eternal things? We're going to get into some particulars next week. Let's look at verse 12 through 15. I want to touch on this just a little bit, kind of in preparation for next week. Verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So a right perspective in regard to life and death. Are you abiding in Christ? How do we hold on to Christ? Think about that for just a second. Because if I'm giving you a list of things to do today that you're going to take out of here and you're going to go try to do, you're missing the point. How do we hold on to Christ? 
I almost want to hear an audible answer. I would say I can't. Can't do it. But remember, we have reason to worship. Remember the wise and faithful servant? Where was he? He was right where God placed him. The servant of God is set in place by God. He's born in Christ. He will hear the shepherd's voice. He'll follow. He'll abide. He'll move in obedience. I thought about titling this sermon, The Servant of Christ. This is how he rolls. He stayed on Christ. See, we're in this process. We call it sanctification. We're in this process where God is showing us who we are and who he is. You know, and you read these things and, man, it's, you know, it's, it's devastating. It can be really devastating. But then it's exhilarating because you see God is our provision. Our work is to believe. Our work is to trust and have faith that what Christ has done is sufficient. That he is seated and fully in session. And we do move accordingly. Not out of duty. Not out of an attempt to earn a badge. I am a good and faithful servant. We see Christ fully sufficient. James 1.16 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Man, do you want to be stayed on someone who never changes? Or stayed on yourself? Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation, of his creatures. If we believe that, if we understand that, we've been brought forth by his will, by his truth. Our posture is humble gratitude. Not wanting to make much of ourselves. Our title, our position. But humble gratitude following Christ. Completely dependent on God for our provision. I want to close with Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, not our work, his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I'm so thankful for your word. Father, I'm thankful for the high standard that gives us a glimpse into the depth of your love, the width of your love, the length of your word. And Father, I want to thank you for this life, the circumstances I'm in. the opportunity, Father, to walk in obedience, to know you. To be proven, to be your servant. Father, I pray this morning that your word would do damage to those places where we have ourselves seated on the throne. We're serving ourselves and what we say and how we move and what we pursue. Father, grow our faith. Grow our trust in you. You would truly be our portion. Father, that we'd be fully and completely satisfied in the finished work of Christ. Content in plenty. Content without. Wherever you have us. For your sake. For your glory. Father, I pray for a perspective and a posture and a movement. That's to the praise of your glorious grace. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his finished work. We pray in his matchless name. Jesus. Amen.